0: I turn my head, honestly turn my head and look to the back as I draw my bow because I'm afraid that it's going to snap. It's that cold. And I draw this thing back, and I'm like, wow, it didn't blow up. I'm good. <laughs> deer steps <laughs> out. He's like 22 yards. I shoot this deer, and literally as this deer is running, you can watch the blood freezing. Really? He runs about, yeah, I mean, it's like freezing as it hits the snow. I mean, it's that cold. And this deer runs probably 35, 40 yards, stops, falls over dead. Skin in this thing, and all of a sudden he goes, well, what is that? I said, what do you mean? He goes, feel this. And so I put my hand up inside the cavity of that deer again behind the shoulder, and there's this huge mass in there. Just, I mean, just like a big tumor almost. He's like, well, we got to find out what this is. And I said, yeah. So we cut this thing open, and after we get the cape off stuff, so we're hacking away, and we cut this big mass out of there, cut it open, and here's my daughter's broadhead with two-and-a-half inches of her arrow inside the
1: deer.
2: <laughs> big Buck Registry's deer hunting podcast, powered by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, episode number 214. Art Helen, 365 Food Sources deep water pools and the deer sanctuary please support our sponsors as they make this show possible today's show is sponsored by advanced takedown tree stands the horny buck seed company covert scouting cameras and Morse's sporting goods big buck registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories we preserve a piece of americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country and who knows maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level
0: hi my name is joe denito i'm one of the adirondack trackers at adktrackers.com you're about to listen to my favorite podcast, Big Buck Registry. This is John Eberhardt. I've been hunting out of a saddle since 1981. I'm about to listen to my favorite podcast, Big Buck Registry, deer hunting podcast.
3: Hey, everybody. This is Mia Anstine of Mac
4: Outdoors. You are about to push play on one of my favorite podcasts, Big Buck Registry.
2: Welcome, fellow predators and carnivores. My name is Jay. And for Jim Keller and Dusty Phillips... Welcome to another episode of the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. If you're interested in this podcast or other podcasts, we could really use your help. If you're an iPhone user, and you're a podcast listener, and you're a deer hunter, and you like this show, if you would, even if you don't use the podcast app, but you use something else like Stitcher, or Blueberry, or TuneIn, or you go to YouTube and watch our shows over there, would you please do something for us? Go to the podcast app and do a search for Big Buck Registry, and then hit subscribe. Once it comes up and I understand iTunes does not make this easy, but leave us a review about this show. If you're a first time user or a long time user and you haven't done it yet, please go over there. Give us a review, hopefully a five star, but if it's not, that's okay. We need the feedback and it certainly helps our visibility in the iTunes charts. If you do that. So if you could please support this show by doing that, that'd be greatly appreciated. We're also running the harness program. There are three ways to help out in the harness program. Number one, if you need a harness, shoot us an email. Number two, if you have harnesses to donate, shoot us an email. Or number three, if you don't need a harness and you don't have a harness to donate, but you want to participate in this cause where we put harnesses in the hands of the hunters that need them, you can go to bigbuckregistrycom forward slash harness and you can donate. A little bit goes a long way. And the reason we're raising money is that we need a budget to mail these things out as they arrive. So if you could, again, bigbuckregistry.com forward slash harness, and you can support that cause by visiting that website and donating whatever you feel you can. We're going to turn to our interview with Art Helen in just a moment, but before we do, let's turn to Jim Keller
4: with the Deer News. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. What you should know about EHD and how it affects deer. This story was originally featured on the DeerAndDeerHunting.com website and was written by Alan Clemens. What do you know about epizootic hemorrhage disease? It's one of several diseases that hunters hear about but often don't know much about. Here's a description of EHD from the Michigan DNR. Epizootic hemorrhagic disease is an acute, infectious, often fatal viral disease of some wild ruminants. This malady, characterized by extensive hemorrhage has been responsible for significant epizootics in deer in the northern United States and southern Canada. And just a note, I looked up what epizootic means. It means an epidemic among animals of a single kind within a particular region. A similar hemorrhagic disease called blue tongue also occurs throughout the U.S. and Canada. The two diseases are antigenetically different. EHD is starting to hit in several states pretty hard, including eastern Tennessee and eastern Kentucky. Wildlife officials in other states are on the lookout as the usual five to six year cycle of midges combined with weather patterns of drought and or heavy rain seem to be in play this summer. The disease is contracted almost always around water sources by biting midges, and then infected deer usually return to or find a water source as the disease and dehydration sets in. The Michigan DNR has a good video clip about EHD hosted by Tim Hart and pathologist Tom Cooley. Solid info like this can help you know more about the disease. DNR seeks input on January deer hunt. This story was originally featured on the Post Bulletin website. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources is seeking input on a proposed late-season antlerless-only deer hunt in southeastern Minnesota. The DNR will host two public input meetings about the proposed hunt, potential dates, bag limits, and other restrictions. The first meeting will be held from 7 to 8 30 p.m. Wednesday in the Houston Elementary School Gymnasium at 310 South Sherman Street in Houston. The second meeting will be 7 to 8 30 p.m. Thursday in the DNR Central Office Lobby 500 Lafayette Road in St. Paul. Online input will be taken from August 28th through September 11th. The late season antlerless only hunt is proposed for January 6th to January 14th concurrent with a late chronic wasting disease hunt in Deer Permit Area Number 603. The deer permit areas that are proposed to be included are 346, 348, and 349 in the far southeastern corner of the state. Populations in the three permit areas have been over the population goals set in 2014 for multiple seasons. This proposed additional late antlers-only season hunt would facilitate moving populations toward established goals and provide additional hunting opportunities. DNR officials want to know how people feel about some of the specifics of the proposed hunt, including hunt dates, whether the hunt be limited to private land only, whether a bag limit of five deer is appropriate, and whether the hunt occur at all. Moose hunting in two North Dakota wild refuges would be a first. This story was originally featured on the Outdoor News website. Federal officials are proposing allowing moose hunting for the first time in the Deluxe and Upper Saurus wildlife refuges in northern North Dakota. The proposal also calls for the Upper Source Refuge to have turkey hunting for the first time. The two refuges already are open to upland game and big game hunting, and Upper Source is also open to fishing. The proposed expansion of outdoor opportunities is through an effort by Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to increase access to hunting and fishing on public lands and waters across the country. The public has about a month to comment on the proposal. (laughs) Tiffany Lukoski opens up about her battle with cancer. This story was originally featured on the Wide Open Spaces website and was posted by Reed Vanderveen. It was shortly after delivering their second child that Tiffany Lukoski got some unwelcome news. She had been diagnosed with carcinosarcoma, a rare but treatable form of uterine cancer. Hosts of the popular hunting show Crush with Lee and Tiffany, the Lukoskys approach cancer in much the same way they do with their hunting patience, hard work, and humility. What may be the most interesting portion of the story, however, was Lee's response to the news. Upon receiving the news, Tiffany writes in a recent Instagram post, Lee said to me, Tiffany, are you a caribou or an elk? After receiving a puzzled look, Lee continued, you can hit a caribou in the leg and he will lay down with no will to live, or you can hit an elk perfectly behind the shoulder and double lung him and he will run for miles. They are a strong animal with an amazing will to live. So which are you, a caribou or an elk? That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. This week's guest is
2: Art Helen. Art Helen spends a lot of time in the deer woods. He is a student. Art says that it's not unusual for him to spend 150 days a year in the field. Guiding, scouting, hunting, but most of all, learning. You'll often find Art delivering seminars for many different aspects of deer hunting, where he shares stories that he draws from his own experiences, both successes and failures. Art uses lots of today's technology, including online topographical and aerial maps and game cameras. He loves a good food plot, timberland management, pond projects, and smart foresters. Art conducts his own deer habitat consultations and will share his knowledge with any hunter that will listen so without further ado here is Art Helen Art Helen welcome to the Big Buck Registry's deer hunting podcast how are you my friend
0: I'm good how are you Jay
2: I'm doing good I'm doing good where are you at right now
0: sitting in my office in Dodgeville Wisconsin Dodgeville
2: Wisconsin what's going on in Dodgeville these days
0: oh not a lot it's uh for August it's actually kind of nice the uh weather is quite cool and not humid which is odd for around here at this time of year but uh, not a lot, just getting um you know, we're counting down the days until deer season starts which will be oh, mid-September this year for bow season and um so just trying to uh get some things ready around here for deer season and I've got uh, some photo work and a trip I'm taking with my wife here in a couple of weeks and so i got a to get a few things ready for that other than that it's just work that's all that's happening in dodgeville
2: <laughs> <laughs> gotcha all right <laughs> isn't it funny how we we as hunters count down the days to to opening day of deer season
0: yeah you know what I, I don't know however though that uh deer season if you're you know uh into management and into you know land management like i am that if it ever ends you know it's it's a 365 day thing but uh as far as counting to opening day yeah as soon as that day closes you know we know exactly we're already looking at regs for the following year and what states open where and when and and what day and and start making plans you know the day that season ends uh here it's usually the first part of january and then it's all of a sudden okay you know now let's get through this and then Deer season starts again here in September. So what do we got to do? Right. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I guess we're uh, we're a whole different breed, as they would say.
2: Right. I completely agree with you. the The conceptual part of hunting, the scouting, the preparation, the thoughts—they never stop. It's it's all year long. It's only that that part where they give you permission to go hunt the species in which you are hoping to encounter. That's that's the countdown, right?
0: uh it's, like I said, it's amazing anymore because there's so many states that start at different times. You, you get into, you know, the southern states or some of the western states, and, you know, they're going to start here at the end of the month here already, or even before the end of the month, and then, yeah. you know, if you're into the southwest, into the... Who is deer and, and some of those, you know, they've already started or starting next week already. So, right. um, you know, elk season starts. So yeah, it's, uh, it's different, but white tails, um, you know, that is the most sought after big game animal. And, uh, so yeah, that, that countdown seems to be the countdown for, you know, the majority of people that when it closes, we already know. And, you know, you'll start seeing the memes already out there on, you know, different social media sites and stuff the day after, you know, don't feel so bad. Hunting just closed, you know, only 196 days till opening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) True
2: true hunters never stop thinking about it, really.
0: (laughs) That's true. That is true.
2: So tell us about yourself. Where, where are you from? Where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a
0: child? Well, um, I grew up here in Dodgeville and, uh, you know, things were good. My, my mom worked at a company here called Land's End, uh, which is still around a big clothing company.
2: Sure. Yeah. Huge clothing company. Uh, yeah.
0: Yes. And, uh, my dad, um, was self employed and, uh, real estate and real estate appraisals. Yeah. So as I grew up, I was really into sports and, um, as a young kid, but I really liked the outdoors and my dad, he didn't do a lot of hunting. He he hunted some, but he really wasn't into it uh, like I am. And so my grandmother uh, saw this passion in me, and so she would pick me up. I, I grew up going to a Catholic school, and so she would pick me up if I didn't have sports or something and take me out to, we have a park, Governor Dodge State Park. It's a 5,000-acre-plus state park here right outside of town, uh, beautiful rolling hills filled with wildlife, And she would take me out there and she would park her car and read a book and let me go down, you know, towards the beach or the lake or wherever and watch birds or watch deer or, you know, she would just drive me all over the countryside and saw that passion. And so she wanted me to enjoy the outdoors. And uh, she was never really a hunter. My grandma wasn't uh, or my grandfather, but she knew that's what I wanted to do. So she was not going to discourage me and, and help me get into that. And she actually bought me my first camera, a uh, 35 millimeter camera when I was 10 years old to take start taking pictures of these animals and uh, do different things with that. And from there, it just kind of grew. And so my dad got into hunting a little more as he saw my passion. Well, back then it was 12 years old before you could eat hunt here in the state of Wisconsin and so once I turned 12 I'd taken hunter safety and my dad started you know getting me to hunt actually when I was uh, 11 years old you know we started going to the ranges and shooting and another friend of ours um, Paul Juleson who happened to be a Vietnam vet who was a friend of my dad's came home from Vietnam on the day that I was born and so him and I always kind of talk about that because I don't know if that's what the bond was because he got home and, you know, found out that his friend, my dad, um, had just had their son, which would have been me obviously. And, um, so that kind of hit things off and he was really into bow hunting. And so he said, you know, I'd, I'd love to teach Art how, uh, to bow hunt since he didn't have any sons at that time of his own that wanted to hunt. And so he kind of took me under his wing as far as bow hunting. So hmm. I started, you know, right away at the age of 11 years old um, when he got me into it of uh, shooting bow. Actually, it was probably when I was 10, started to shoot bow before rifles. And um, my first bow was an old Browning Bantam. I right. still remember that bow because we bought it at a garage sale from a guy for like $25. And, uh <laughs> And it worked great for a few years, but it was one of those, it was all just one piece wood riser, uh, limbs, everything was one piece, you know, and, um, it ended up cracking, uh, when I was 12 years old, I believe it was. And then, you know, then we started moving up the chain as far as technology and stuff over the years. And, uh, so that kind of drove my passion into that. And I really got into bow hunting and, and gun hunting. Well, then I was also, because of my sports and, you know, high school, I hunted as much as I possibly could, but, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the football too and, and was into, uh, powerlifting and mm-hmm. different things. So then when I went into college, I went to college to play football, um, went in for advertisement marketing, and then, uh, business management with a minor in art and photography. Wow. So Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, I kind of split the art because I liked the arts um, end of it, but I think a lot of that was driven due to the photography work and, you know, they play hand in hand. And so it was, uh, it was neat to see how they actually did that. And so anyway, I went in and wanted to, you know, play football while I was there. So I played football at university of Wisconsin, River Falls. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then after I got out of school, then I just kind of, uh, really got back into hunting and um, did a lot of tournament shooting and was picked up at that time uh, by a bow company. And from there, it just kind of snowballed. Then it started dealing more with some of the hunting companies and just slowly turned it into a business um, due to the passion of hunting and photography and uh, just the outdoors in general. And uh, then we worked with my wife and I actually, uh, one day on a plane, I was heading out to do seminars in Michigan on uh, deer vocalizations, mm-hmm. and Ralph sienz was sitting on the plane next to me. And this is, <laughs> you got to remember, before Ralph and Tarula was Ralph sienz he was, you know, kind of in the same boat. He didn't have a TV show yet or anything else. Well, him and I started talking on the plane back and forth. He was actually going to the same cabela as I was to do seminars on elk hunting. And so Ralph and I talked, and this would have been in 1998. And uh, then in 19, the end of 98, beginning of 99, my wife and I started filming with them uh, for their um, at the time VHS series. <laughs> they didn't even have a TV <laughs> right, series. right? Back in the day of the tape, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so we started filming with them, and uh, then in 2000 they started their TV show, and uh, we were with them for approximately nine, ten years uh overall. And things just kind of led us um apart. You know, he had certain sponsors that, you know, he had obviously, you know, as the host of the show and, and him and Vicky it was their show um and there's incredible super people. They had their things to do and I had my things to do for my sponsors. And so we just kind of parted ways on good terms. We're still very good friends. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of went my way and just kept developing uh, my end of, you know, the hunting industry per se, which has a lot of different entities in it, um, which is my, you know, then developed into my Art Helen Outdoors LLC as well. Gotcha. Gotcha game.
2: Gotcha. Fascinating story. So in a, uh, just a random plane ride.
0: Yep. Just, uh, and you know, I was in the industry before that, but, um, would I be where I am today without the extra exposure that that show had given me or that, you know, being part of that would have been, I don't know, you know, you're put in places for reasons. Um, and was that the reason, you know, right. um, I, I'm not sure. I, I really can't explain that, but, uh, you know, I, I was, like I said, I'd been in the industry since 1993. So five or six years, you know, prior, but, uh, that just kind of helped keep things rolling and, and keep the momentum going forward as far as things. Gotcha. Went. So, gotcha. and, um, you know, so after that, now, like I said, we've, we've really snowballed, uh, my wife and I into different things. Um, you know, under that umbrella, we have <laughs> a lot of different things. Uh, as I say, uh, Jack of all trades and master of none, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Underneath <laughs> that because right. I kind of get that question all the time. So what exactly is, you know, art Helen outdoors, what exactly do you do? And, um, so I, I have to explain that a lot, um, which is a little different because it's it's different than what a lot of people within the industry do.
4: You know, they've either
0: got one thing that they do as far as the filming or as far you know, for the T V shows or they're a cameraman or they um have a habitat thing or they have. there's just one thing myself I've always learned and I, I guess I learned this a long time ago, is to diversify. And right. so I've I've kind of diversified a lot of different things to hopefully uh, help more people out. I, I like to educate, that's what I like to do. I, um, as a business manager, I, I really like to educate people and when they come back to me and say, hey, I did this, um, I learned it at one of your seminars, it worked, I shot the best deer I've ever shot, or this happened, um, I was successful with this, that to me is priceless.
2: Right. Very cool. Do you remember the first gun you ever shot as a kid?
0: The first gun? Yeah. Would have been a little bolt action twenty-two.
2: <laughs> <laughs> twenty-two is the most common answer. It's it's, it's, yeah. it's it's other than BB gun, but then we don't count that. Um, well, we do, but we don't. Very cool. Um,
0: so yeah, it would have been my grandfather's, um, and I actually still have that gun. And uh, I've kept that. And then the second gun that I ever shot was my grandpa had a um, 16-gauge pump. Yep. And uh, I still have that gun. And then uh, here's a really interesting one for you. So the first deer rifle I ever used was a 32 Special Winchester Special lever action. Really? Yes. Now, the story behind this gun, my grandfather used to own a Ford Mercury dealership in Dodgeville here. Yep. And one day in the late 60s, it would have been, a gentleman came walking into the shop with a backpack on and this 32 Special tied to it. He came in and he started talking to my grandfather. You know, this is a story my grandfather had told me now. Sure. And said that, you know, this gentleman started talking to me. And he said, you know, he says, I I want to test drive that car out there. My grandfather's like, well, which one? And he says, well, the old one down there at the end of the lot. My grandpa's like, well, you know, he said, that car is just, you know, is a piece of junk, you know, $100 car, you know, which was even inexpensive at that time. And he says, "It you know, it about ran. That was about all it really did. (laughs) And uh, he says, you know, but I, I don't know you. Um, I don't know where you come from, anything else. He says, you know, he says, I, I just need a car to get from here to there. You know, it looks like an inexpensive car. I'll tell you what, I will leave this gun here. He says as collateral for me taking that car, <laughs> you know, to to go out and test drive that car. Right. Grandpa says, all right, have at it. He said, the guy, he says, as soon as he jumped in that car, he said, and the way I saw him organizing things, he says, I knew I was never going to see that car again. Ah. Uh. He says, he took off of that car. He says, I never saw it again. He said, that's where this rifle came from.
2: That's a good story.
0: And and I still have that rifle. And uh, we actually still use that. Um, and actually, next year, my wife wants to go out mount lion hunting, and that is the rifle that she will use on that hunt.
2: Wow. What a cool yeah. story. That's <laughs> nuts. I wonder what ever happened to the car.
0: I have no idea. The guy probably... <laughs> Got it as far as he could go until it broke down, and then right. took off from there. You know, Grandpa said I never called it in or anything else because I knew I was never getting it back. Right? And he said the rifle. You know, he says I actually needed a rifle, and the rifle was probably worth more than that car was. So he says I didn't really care. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he made out okay. Yeah, he knew, he, knew yeah. he was on the the upper end on that one.
0: That's funny. It, yeah. yeah, he did. So so it was um so it was kind of neat. You know, so yeah, that would have been the first uh, first gun. Um, as far as deer rifle or larger caliber gun that gotcha. I'd ever shot. Gotcha.
2: Let's talk so. a little bit about your your habitat consultation work that you do. Or it's, it's kind of a interesting concept. Not a lot of guys do it, and it's something that I think is is uh, very sought after. Like people are looking for information on this kind of thing, and to know that you you do it um as professionally is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, and you know it's it's something that is growing, and more and more people as You know, they're getting more into mature deer. Um, I do a lot of seminars all over the country on deer vocalizations, um, habitat management, um, you know, mature deer, getting deer to maturity, you know, age versus antlers, because there's a lot of things that now people are looking at saying, well, you know, that 150-inch deer is only a three-year-old deer. He's got potential to be a giant. But that 6 year olds only 140-inch deer. Let's shoot that 140-inch deer and let that 150-inch deer walk, which is tough to do. But, you know, that is the new trend. That is what I'm seeing out there as far as people. And so they're wanting to know, how do we keep these deer on our property? How do we, you know, keep these mature deer from running off and getting shot or these three-year-olds? And, you know, the answer is, I don't care how big a piece of property you have you've always got a few deer that are going to leave. It's it's just going to happen. Right. If somebody tells you it's not, well then you've got a high fence because it, it's just it's in it's in their DNA. Deer have to go and they have to check things out. Right. However, as deer get older, you know, they start their home ranges start getting smaller. And if you give them, I truly believe and I've seen it, you know, that if you give them the best food, water cover and sanctuaries, you can do a lot, even with just, you know, a small piece of land, you know, on a 40 acre piece, on a 20 acre piece, um, up to, you know, a 2000 acre piece and how it all started. Uh, my dad and I, 20 some years ago, bought a 40 acre piece property and we really wanted to get into deer management. One of my neighbors did too. And so as I'm looking at this, I'm like, you know, we just can't keep the deer here and it was too open. Things just weren't happening. So I started talking to some foresters because we um, enrolled it into a managed forest law program. So I started talking to local foresters. and, What do you do? How do you do this? And uh, so then I started taking some classes on this forestry and sitting through and talking. to So then I'd walk this and like, all right, so, you know, I'm reading this on, you know, how to stump cut. I'm reading this on how to hinge cut. I'm reading this on, you know, what trees that, you know, box, all those things that we just need to kill and get out of here after we cut them. And so all of a sudden things started progressing and I started talking to these guys. Said All right, let's go out and look at my piece. What can we do out here to do this? Well, once I got foresters out there, you know, we started looking. I'm like, well, I read this about hinge cutting. You say that to a forester and they about come unglued. Um, (laughs) Why is that? Absolutely. They just hate um, any type of hinge cutting. That's interesting because
2: it's such a a technique that deer hunters love. And I I had no idea foresters were against that.
0: Yeah. And it is. And does it work? Yes, it works. But, you know, I'm not huge on hinge cutting either. Uh, just because of what I've learned through all the foresters. And I've learned that there's other techniques that you can do that are just as effective, if not more effective, on certain areas. Hinge cutting, if you have a mix, can be great because hinge cutting truly is really good to direct deer, um, to make deer go in certain ways, where I can get just as good a bedding areas or better bedding by stump cutting certain trees. And killing off certain trees than I can uh, by hinge cutting, especially in the northern areas. Because once that snow gets in there, you know, you want that tree hinge cut to live for a few years. Well, what happens is is that snow gets in there, it starts busting up that tree, it breaks. Well, in the meantime, for the couple years that it lived, the sunlight didn't get down underneath those leaves, so that stuff's dead. So once those trees finally drop, now it takes longer for new regeneration in that area. And so all you've got is kind of a lot of brush piles, but they're good for rabbits because there's nothing green in there for things to hide in. Gotcha. Um, So, you know, but again, to use that in certain areas, it works great. So as I worked with all these foresters and, and started looking at that, we implemented, you know, both things on our property. And I started watching this and started learning that, okay, we need to do this in phases because if we do it all at once, everything comes back at the same time so if we want to create certain bedding areas here so we can hunt you know
4: the wind right
0: for that bedding area we can't do the whole property we have to create that bedding area and then figure out okay this is where you know maybe there's a food source there so now we have to create a bedding area off that food source now we can figure out where our stands are going to go and then we can go in there and develop water sources and so as I start looking at this plan, then I start looking, okay, now who knows what about water? So I started working with aquatic biologists because I'm like, okay, I have kiddie pools out. I have different, you know, little pools out and they work great for the first two years. And all of a sudden images on trail cameras start dwindling and start dwindling. I'm like, what is going on here? So I start talking to these biologists. So we started running some water tests and different things and finding out that because they're so shallow and if you don't do certain things, they fill up and they get a lot of bacteria in them. Okay. So once they get all this bacteria, then the deer just don't come to them as often. So you have to either, you know, they get frail uh, up here, they'll break different things. So I said, all right, so then what do we do? How, How do you, you know, how do you overcome this? Well, then they found out that, okay, you either can use bentonite or there's certain new within the last 10, 12 years, they've come out with new pond liners that deer and elk don't poke through. And as you get these, they aren't rubber. It's a different type of material. Then you put a mat on top of that which holds the dirt in place because then you'll put dirt on top of those just like in bentonite yep. and that will actually seal that and hold it. But it will also hold in those natural minerals that are in water. But if you make that over three and a half feet deep, three and a half feet deep and deeper, which for most of the wildlife ponds, I have three and a half to four and a half feet deep. Okay. The reason is you need that, especially up north here to hit a certain degree when that, bottom of that pond hits 39 degrees it turns over just like a lake
2: really fascinating yeah. <laughs> and that's so that's that, three and a half feet deep
0: right it's got to be over three and a half feet deep okay and so to, to get the difference in surface temperature to bottom temperature right and so in the spring when it hits that it's just like a lake so if you're a big fisherman people are like oh the lake's turning over you know you get all that sure. green slime onto that's what happens that water mixes in the bottom of the lake. Um is at that 39 degrees and starts warming past that 39 degrees once it warms past that 39 degrees it starts pulling all that off the bottom and turning it over to the top and so when it does that it pulls all those natural minerals out of the soil all the plant proteins that have sat in the bottom all winter and turns that over to the top and that's what gives that green slimy whatever on top for like a month gotcha if you look at your photos that's when you see a lot of deer in there. You see it because, and, and I don't know, and I've asked the biologists and a lot of them don't know, um, and I don't know. It's just a theory that everybody has is that if you look at the timing of that, the timing is when the turkeys have their poults, it's when the fawns are born, and it's when your bucks are starting to develop antlers. So that's when they need all that extra protein and mineral. And so is that Mother Nature's way of pulling that off the bottom and bringing that to them for easier access? I don't know. Um, It's just a theory that people have come up with. And, you know, so once that happens, it brings that up there, and so you're giving them better water. And as the rains and stuff come in, it actually cleans that out, makes the water better. Because it stays deep enough, it stays cool enough, that you're not going to get that bacteria and stuff growing in there, like you will um, in your shallow ponds. So I worked with them and figured out, okay, how do you do this? Where do you build them? Then, of course, we found out, you know, if you've got ridges on your property, try to get them as high on your ridges, you know, just off the top so that rainwater fills them up. Uh, Because in most states, damming a creek, opening up a spring, uh, anything like that is illegal without DNR permits. Right, right. That makes sense. However, pretty much every state that... I've ever worked in, as long as you are just collecting rainwater, it's legal. Okay. Okay. So, you know, you, you're not going to go in and, and dam these other areas up. The other thing is, is you bring these higher on the hills. Again, you can place those, say, okay, here's my food. Here's my bedding. Now here's my water. I'm giving them everything there as a one-stop shop. Now I can place my tree stands for the winds. Right. You know, so now it's easier to hunt. It's easier to access um, getting to these places, then it would be say down in a crick. Plus your wind is going to be more steady on the tops of those hills. If you do down in a bottom, usually there's a lot of wind swirl, cricks, ponds down in bottoms. Yes, they fill up faster, but they're a lot more difficult to hunt and be successful over. So, you know, that's, then that was part two into the land management that I learned is bringing that in. So after that, then I'm like, okay, now what do we have to do, because we're now we're definitely keeping more deer here because we've got some of the best bedding we have with all the TSI work, which is timber stand improvement. Yep. So now we've got great improvement on that. However, what about food? So the mentality that I've learned over the years that people have is we think too much like normal farmers, like crop farmers. Um and here, you know, we come from areas of like Iowa, Wisconsin, uh Illinois, Ohio, Kansas, you know, you get here in the Midwest and it's all about cornfields and bean fields and um, you know, the different ag sources. Well, what happens is if we think like that and you look at the timeline, so you've got alfalfa, which is great. That starts right away in the spring. However, you go in there and it dies off or becomes you know, dormant in the fall, your beans, your corn, the leaves start drying up and falling off your beans, usually about the first week or two weeks prior in September. So just prior to bow season opener, your corn, all the silk, everything dries up, your corn leaves the milky stage starts getting hard. So all of a sudden that happens within just before bow season opens up in most states. And so now all of a sudden you've had great food source up until then. Now what do you have? You have to wait again until December right. for them to be back in there for food sources. So I started looking at things different and talking to some different agronomists and uh, started working with um, a gentleman out of, actually out of Madison here. And I started saying, well, you know, this is, I want to figure out how to do 365 day food plots. I said, I want those deer. So now if I give them everything, they can't leave. Right. Um, you know, are they still going to, yes, like I said, there's always a few, but the majority I want to stay. So I started looking at it saying, all right, what right away in the spring? He's like, well, you got clovers, you have alfalfas, you have chicories, um, you know, great spring planting stuff. It's right there in the spring where you plant it, it's good for four or five years, it's always gonna be ready right away in the spring. That stays until November up here when, you know, things start freezing and uh, they become dormant. Down south, it's a little different story, Uh, but those plans are completely different written. You know, I've been there, can I do them? Yes, but I usually leave those areas for people in the same business down there because they know that. I do a lot of stuff in the Midwest. And so then, you know, we looked at it and I said, now what? I said, well, what about beans? Because they like beans and they like leaves. So, all right, well, let's figure out, we'll put beans, but let's figure out how to plant them so I can come back in in August or July, the end of July, first part of August in these areas and overseed that or replant on top of all the beans or even in the corn and put in my early fall, and winter food sources. Gotcha. So now all of a sudden I'm planting in between everything, and now I've got brassicas and turnips and radishes and um, all these different winter wheats all through the middle of this. So now all of a sudden as the leaves start falling off your beans or the corn starts to get hard, now you have all this lush green that's up in between everything. So now they don't have to, now they've got all the clovers, now they've got all the brassicas, now they've got all the late fall stuff, and now in the winter, they'll have all those bulbs, plus they have what's left over for beans and corn. Hopefully, there's enough there that will get them right up until spring, then all of a sudden as the saw starts, all your clovers and alfalfas, uh, chicories, they all start turning green, coming back right away. Now you have that 365-day food source. Gotcha. Okay. So now all of a sudden I'm like, all right, so now we're starting to figure out this food, but I've still got these mature deer. So I've got a lot of deer running around, but my mature deer are still there only to a certain time and then they leave. I'm like, what is going on? So as I start watching these and documenting and figuring things out, I'm like, all right, if I put pressure on these old deer, one, two, and three-year-old deer, they don't care. Four, five, six-year-old deer. I pressure them; they're gone. Okay. And right. as they take off, they may only go a forty acres away, or they might—they aren't going to go twenty miles. You know, they may go a little ways, but that might be because that next-door neighbor only rifle hunts, and he has no pressure on his property. He's that same neighbor that all of a sudden you walk in there, opening day rifle season, and he shows up and goes, "Hey, you ever seen this deer before? I've never seen him. First time I walked in my woods, and there he was, and I shot him." And you're like. Ugh. <laughs> You know, it's because you were pressuring it. So then all of a sudden say, okay, where do I develop areas of sanctuary that I can stay out of? Once I get these done after, and I always say mid-July to the end of July, you're done. Don't go in there anymore because that's when your bucks, all your mature bucks and your bucks are starting to slowly break out of their uh, bachelor groups. Yep. And those older deer are trying to figure out where their home ranges are. If you're in their home range pushing them, they're going to find that security. And so, you know, as they do that, um, you have to figure out where you can get to on these properties. And so as a land manager, that's what I do. I come in and I, I look at people's properties. I walk through those entire that property with the owner. And then I get back and I start looking at wind directions. I start looking at different elevations on those properties, how things lay, and then say, okay, now here's the plan we're going to develop. This is where we're going to do bedding. This is where we're going to do food. This is where we're going to do water. This is where your sanctuaries are going to be. And this is how you're going to access these stands on these winds. And um, that's what you know. they hire us to do as, as a land manager, because some people just don't see it or don't have the time to do it Um, or just bought a new piece where, you know, myself, it took truly working with everybody, you know, 10 to 15 years before I'm like, okay. And that was going in and setting up a bunch of other people's properties that were friends and people I knew. And, you know, is it just working on mine or does it work on everybody's? So I'm taking all this knowledge from everybody, you know, the true aquatic biologists, the foresters, um, you know, looking at the agronomists and and all these different people, putting all those pieces of the puzzle together myself and then saying, okay, yeah, this is working on mine, there's everything else. Then about five years ago, six years ago, I had enough behind me saying, yeah, this is truly working, so um, I'm going to start a business doing this. And that's when I started doing that, you know, so it took me 15 to 18 years of doing research and, and making sure everything was actually working before I actually said, yeah, let's let's do this and make this part of, you
4: know, the Art Helen
0: Outdoors LLC as far as gotcha. the, uh, gotcha. consultation work. So,
2: yep. What did you do, Let, let's kind of go back just a second, the the canopy and the, the tree um management what did you do there as far as and, and i don't know what your property was like when you first got there what how much thought goes into that um before <laughs> before you get to the food stuff
0: um there's quite a bit actually you know when you walk through because you want to make sure that you're not taking out the wrong trees or that you know when you when you walk through a piece of property you have to look at it and say, man, there's there's no undergrowth here, but there's certain areas where those deer like that in the summer because it's cooler in those areas. There's not so much brush around them. Um, so they have to have some of that, too. There has to be a mix. Um, we also started implementing, uh, two years ago, I started working with uh, a lot of guys that do prescribed burns. Yep. And so we're just starting to implement all that to open some areas, get some more natural vegetation and things in certain areas of properties. But, you know, the trees... So all depends on where you're at in the country and what types of trees you have. Because, you know, here we have a lot of white oaks, red oaks. We have a lot of elm trees, box elders, walnut trees, hickory trees, shagbark hickory, um, black oak. You know, so we have a, a big variety, a mix of different trees. So, you know, box elders, elm trees, they're not... I don't want to say, you know, they're a weed tree, as we call them. Right. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, walnut tree is really a weed tree too. However, a walnut is, you know, a desired tree for the logging industry, for money-wise. So that is why I think that you see a lot of walnut trees still around. Because if you get big walnut areas, that acid that comes out of walnuts, it's really hard to grow anything underneath those, even years after you remove those trees.
2: Oh no kidding. Okay.
0: Interesting Yeah. And so um as you walk through you look through it and you say, okay, this area is really good young oak regeneration. And here we love to have a lot of oaks. So it's really good oak regeneration. However, right next to it there might be a whole bunch of elm trees. Well elm is a very dense wood and very heavy. Hmm. And so I don't want to go in there and, and this is where all of a sudden you start looking at things and go, okay, how how you know, do you want to develop this? Because you should really then start girdling all these elm trees, which girdle, you just go, you make two cuts um, about a foot to a foot and a half off the ground, about six inches apart, and you go about two inches to three inches into the tree all the way around. And it cuts that and it cuts off the supply to that tree and it ends up dying over time. Well, what happens, because it's so dense, if you cut that down and it falls the wrong way, it's going to fall on all those small oak trees and break them. Gotcha. And then you have nothing. Where when you do this with elm trees, what happens is they stay standing, they die, they still let the sunlight get to the oak regeneration with better sunlight, so it shoots those up faster, the elm tree dies, stays standing for five or six years, dries out completely why five or six years of growth happens on that oak tree or your desired trees before that falls over um so that way it doesn't hurt those trees as much for your desired trees so there's a lot of thought process that goes into it and where you're going to do it you know do i need to do it on you know a south facing slope on a north facing what types of bedding areas am i looking for um you know how young are the trees how old are the trees you know so there's There is a lot of process that goes into it. Um, A lot of times, I'll actually get a forester there or have them work with their local forester. And uh, because there's so many grants and so many programs and things out there for landowners already with the local foresters, and most of them, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you know, it's a forester. I don't want him on my property. Foresters, they don't really care what's on your property except for trees. They're looking up ninety percent of the time when they walk through <laughs> the woods because <laughs> right. they they are, you know, they're as passionate true foresters are as passionate about and not loggers. Um, you know, i I'm not gonna say anything bad about loggers because I work with a lot of loggers and there's very good loggers out there. Um but foresters and loggers are two different, you know, animals. Correct. So right. you need to find that forester. Because they walk through and they're looking up all the time at trees. They're, they're as passionate about those trees as we are as about big deer. Right, right. Um, and so you talk to them and say, "Hey, this is what I want to do to my property. I want to create, you know, some timber stand improvement for, you know, better habitat for birds, for deer, for turkeys, for for wildlife in general." Um, they'll be like. Okay, this is what we have to do. If you say, "Hey, I really want the best money trees I can get for down the road for logging, they'll say, "Okay, this is what we need to do right um and and they're great that way and uh the they're definitely the best way, you know especially you know you get into different states because they know what their desired stuff is uh more than here, and so a lot of times I'll go out drop an entire plan. And if they want me to do some of that, it's great. But usually when I drop plants, all right, this is where your bedding's going to be. So this is where these are the areas that you need to get your um, forester in and concentrate on. These areas here where you're going to do your ponds. Um, can I dig those? Sure, I can. But a lot of times the clients that I work with, they want to do 90 to 95% of work themselves. They want to do the chainsawing. They want to build the food plots. They want to build the ponds. They just don't know where to start. And so you have to give them that direction because they want to do it so they feel that they have been the majority of growing that big deer, which they are because they're the ones doing all the work. They just, I just gave them a direction to go in and said, this is the plan that I would follow if you truly want to keep deer here and, you know, make your property that much better and desirable for animals. This is what you need to do. Can I... do this and stay here and take two weeks and do all the work for you or whatever. Yeah. But it's gonna cost this much and they're like, Well, I'd rather buy a chainsaw and do it myself. Right. And uh, okay. You know, great, because that's that's what I'm hoping to hear. Right. Is you know, is and not that I don't want to do the work. I have no problems doing the work. But I want that because it's the way I learn too. And the more work that they do themselves and follow that plan, the better they'll get at what they need to do. They'll become better hunters too, because then they'll be able to visualize, okay, now I know why I'm doing this. Now I know why this is here. This is how these deer are going to travel. This is what's going to happen instead of just going out and sitting in a tree stand. Right. Now they can figure that out. And and again, it's right back to educating,
4: you know, like my
0: seminars and everything else. I just, I, I love to educate. And so when you get out there, that's why I love to do that with those people and say, hey, you know what? I'd really like to see you do this yourself. Um, because not only am I educating you on this point of it, but you're going to educate yourself beyond this.
2: Right. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah.
0: So that kind of, that's kind of, uh, land management and, and, you know, how I'm doing that kind of in a nutshell. And, um, you know, so that's one part of the division of the business. Um, you know, the other parts, I do a lot of, uh, seminar work again, um, for a lot of the deer classics, uh. For like the Kansas Big Buck Classic, I did that last year. The Iowa Deer Classic. Yep. Um, a lot of the deer and turkey expos, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, and a lot of those I'll do either management seminars or I'll get into deer vocalizations and uh, turkey hunting stuff. There's there's just a lot of different things that I can cover because again, you know, I've been self employed. I actually. Then when I got out of college, went went to work with my dad um, as, you know, working in the real estate and appraisal business, right. I still help my dad on and off with the appraisal business with when things get slow in this business, which aren't very often anymore. Right. Um, you know, because truly with the land management um, in this area, well, in most areas, usually from January 1 through the first week of April is the best time and when I usually book the most to go look at properties because right now there's so many leaves, so many things you can't see. And so it's not justified for me. Some people will do it, but for me, I don't think I'm doing them just by showing up and saying, you know, I really can't see everything that I need to see, but this is where I think I would do this, where, you know, you go in December, uh, January, different things like or, you know january february march now you can see everything there's no leaves on the trees the underbrush is pretty much knocked down because of snow i can see all the little nooks and crannies and, and where pond should go and food and the different types of trees um you're not gonna miss much where now you're, you're gonna miss a lot of stuff out there
2: gotcha so, so now that you've got Your water source sorted out. You've got your canopy and tree plan in place. You've got your food source developed for various food plots and things like that. And you've given them sanctuary. Where does the hunter fit in? How does the hunter hunt the white tail from there? How do you go about it?
0: Well, and now, you know, that's like myself. um, I'm fortunate again because as I was stating, you know, helping my dad in his business and stuff. So, I get to hunt every day of the year, no matter what. Even if I shoot something, I'm still out there. Why? Because I want to learn. I want to know what that deer is doing in all weathers, you know, rain, snow, winds. What is that deer doing so I can educate those people? So, it brings that hunter in where he needs to... Learn now. He's going to understand those deer because hopefully they're there more often, uh, which they should be if he's done it right. So now, early season. There, there's different early season tactics. You know, I want to hunt. You know, my food sources early in the year. Uh, the, the deer are concentrating on that. And as things start to progress through into that first part of October, their food sources change a little bit, maybe to those acorn flats. So you're going to look at that now all of a sudden, because you have this developed, you should know where bedding areas are, where your food source. So now you can start figuring out where all your pinch points are and where your funnels are. So now that's where you want to move to once you get into that late October. Move off those food sources. Too many people keep concentrating on your food sources because they see so many does and all that buckle show up here. And they will. If you want to hunt those right away in the morning or mm. late in the afternoon, that's great. But the problem is a lot of times you're going to end up blowing deer off of those areas. Right um, During the rut, eh, sometimes you can get away with it. Early season, not so much. Um, one tactic that I like to use if I'm sitting food sources early season is I will take coyote calls with me. I'll take coyote howler with me. Really? That way, as soon as, it gets, yeah, as soon as it gets dark, if I have a lot of deer still sitting on that field and I'm sitting on the field edge, I don't want to get out and educate those deer and blow them out of there. So I wait until it's dark. As soon as it's getting dark and all I can see is anything through my binoculars moving a little bit, then I will take that coyote howler and I'll start howling because we've got a lot of coyotes around here. As soon as I see those flags go up and those deer kind of taking off, once they take off, I'll drop to the base of my tree. I'll mm-hmm. get everything out, drop to the base of my tree. I'll coyote call again and then that's when I sneak out my exit route. That way, if they see me or hear me, they just think it's a coyote. Gotcha. And I've watched my cameras many times where all of a sudden, 10, 15 minutes after I'm gone, those deer are right back on the field. Gotcha. And Because uh, I don't want them to educate them that it's me climbing out of a tree or walking across the edge of the field or, you know, um, something like that. So that's one tactic early in the season that I'll use. But um, getting back to, you know, the rest of the season you know then that october november i'm really going to get into uh those funnel areas and watch those deer especially during midday because those bucks what they're going to do is now they're not going to sit sit down a whole lot you know unless they're locked on a doe which they shouldn't be for another two three weeks you know get into that second week in november the end of the first week and then, then they'll start locking up with these does but The prior two weeks, you know, from the 25th of October until that first part of November, you know, hunt those food sources early and late. And then if you hunt all day, move into those funnel stands, uh, into the woods. Because those deer, especially now that you know where your bedding areas are going to be or your water sources, and those deer are going to move. Those bucks are going to move and check those water sources and check those bedding areas and go on the downwind sides so they can smell and see if anything's bedded in there. If anything's in heat and bedded so then they can go in there. So I always set up on a food source. I've always got two or three different stands because of winds. Funnels, I've always got two or three different stands because of winds. If winds are one way, I want to hunt one side a bit. If they're the other, a different side. I have ingress and egress routes to every one of them that's different depending on the wind uh, because I know where wind is that these deer should be bedded in this area or they should be bedded in this area. So... I can't walk past that to get to here, or I'm going to blow all those deer out. So I have to figure out a different ingress, egress route from point A to point B to get around those deer. Whether it takes a little longer, it takes a little longer, but I don't want to educate those deer. And that's part of developing that whole plan Um, so so you can do that. And so then once you're in there... Well, now, you know, what I call early season, you know, I'll get in and I'll start doing some calling. Right away, you know, for the first week or two of the season, season, uh, social grunts and, uh, you know, just light sparring, rattling. Because a lot of the young deer are trying to figure out who's who on the schoolyard. You know, it's first year with antlers. And so they're out there. It's just like your freshman year in high school, you know, you come walking in and you got to look at another freshman and go, you know what, I think I can take that guy. I'm bigger than you. And, you know, I'm going to be the new kid on this schoolyard. And then all of a sudden the senior walks in and he doesn't do anything but walk up to you and kind of give you that look. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand. I'm just a freshman. it's no different with those deer when when those mature deer hear that real light sparring or those social grunts it's more of a um they just want to come in and check it out it's it's a social thing right it's i'm going to come in and see who you are i'm just going to display my antlers maybe puff up walk sideways a little bit and show you who's boss And so that technique works pretty well early seasons. And then you get into the rut. Well, like I said, you get into that October 25th and and tactics then completely change. Now you can get into long drawn out buck fights, tending grunts, estrus bleats, um, snort wheezes, which I truly believe that if you do the snort wheeze, it's the only call that I won't do is a blind call. What I mean by that is if I don't see a deer, I won't do a snort wheeze. And the reason is is okay. it's a dominant call, and if I do that as a dominant buck and I have a 2-year-old deer there or a 1-year-old deer, I'm going to watch that thing get turned inside out, right. and he's going to take off. like. And what else is that deer going to spook when it takes off? Right, right. Where if I see that deer, and plus if you do that, those bigger deer, the mature deer try to get downwind of you. How many of those sneak behind you and you don't even know they're there because they smell you first? Right. And they sneak off. This way if I see that deer, then I can snort weeds at him and in a direction to make him or try to force him to go on the upwind side of you. Gotcha. So, you know will I rattle and grunt? Yes, I will, because usually they'll all come run into that. Sometimes, you know, especially those older deer, they'll kind of sit out there and stage a little bit and try mm-hmm. to figure things out first. That's when you hit them with that snort wheeze.
1: Gotcha.
2: That makes sense. Uh, that makes a lot of sense.
0: So, so that is really good during that time frame. And then you get into, you know, that second week in November, uh, depending on where you're at, and you start getting into that lockdown phase. A lot of times those dominance calls, you're done. They aren't going to work anymore. Uh, why would you, you know, Mother Nature is telling them, you know, we're running out of time. And this, you know, as far as the rut goes, and that always kind of cracks me up every year because, you know, I hear that you get the second week of October, you have a big cold front come through, you know, you see a one-year-old deer chase running through the doe or running through a field with a couple of does, and your buddy always sends you a text. Dude, ruts early this year. Man, they're starting. It's no, it's, it, I always send back. No, it's not. Right. The rut is always triggered by the day, you know, length of daylight in a 24 hour time frame. Right. And so many people don't believe, or, or don't know, I shouldn't say don't believe, they don't understand that or know that. They think that it's, you know, completely off the moon phase. It's completely off. What the moon phase does is it changes how those deer move throughout that time frame. When those days begin to get shorter and shorter. That's what triggers that. That triggers her to come into estrus. That triggers the rut into that buck. And then the moon phase is when that deer is most likely going to move during daylight. The cooler the weather, the more they're going to move during daylight. That's what the weather and the moon has to do with that. However, you know, as far as the rut goes, it's always going to start real similar to the same time. Um, the moon phase will just give you better days to hunt throughout those that time frame. So you get into and you get past that. And now you get into their lockdown stages. The dominance, because that is starting to get so short, is they're saying, hey, I'm running out of time here. I don't really want to fight that guy. We already know who's the dominant buck in this area. Right. So what do you do? Now I work on the jealousy factor. So now if I see that buck and I see him chasing a doe and running her and running her, obviously she's not ready yet. Or she would already given in if she's not, you know, if I've been watching him for 25 minutes chasing. So I will try to do my estrus bleats with tending runs. Okay. And try to push that button. Try to get that jealousy button where he's like, well, wait a minute here. You know, I've established that I'm the dominant deer in this area.
4: So who's over here
0: playing with my does? So. Hopefully you hit that button right, and you make him jealous enough that he peels off her long enough to come over and check out and see who you are. You know, so you've got about a you know week time frame in there that that seems to work really, really well.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Then
0: you're going to get back into you know then you get into rifle seasons all over the country where if you don't have a lot of pressure, you can still use some of those tactics. Uh, as far as the jealousy and stuff goes. But once those gunshots start going off, man, a lot of those big deer, they just kind of disappear and and hide. And so then you've got to wait until late season. Once I get into late season, then I go back to way back to the beginning of the year because now it's all about social again. Who's the new bucks that got pushed into this area? Which deer made it through the year? And they're all about food. So you hunt food sources, You know, especially when it's super cold, I'll move to those food sources. And that's when I like to use decoys. Um, Early season, during the rut, decoys are a blast. They can either, you can either love them or you can hate them. Because if you've got one up, sometimes you'll have that small little buck come in and he'll knock it over. Or, you know, I've seen one-year-olds and two-year-olds when I've had does out there as a doe decoy, try to breed it and knock it over. Then you've got to climb down, you're spreading more scent, trying to put it up, different things like that. Where late season, they don't really come in to run it off. It's just more of a social thing where they feel more comfortable seeing deer out there during daylight. And if that deer is being vocal to them, that older mature deer is going to say, okay, now I feel comfortable, there's something out here already, they're going to come out and join it. And then that's when I go back to the light sparring, and I'll go back to you know your social grunts your your dough grunts, um different calls like that once you get into that late season time frame
2: gotcha okay so, how how do you treat scent control
0: well i uh you know number one, I always try to play the wind okay um there's a million things out there that help. is there something that is absolutely the best out there that's going to say, you know, it takes 100% of my scent away. Um, I don't believe that, but do I believe that there's a lot of things that truly help contain your scent and make it so you are a lot less detectable to get those deer to walk through your scent streams? Um, Yes. But it all begins early (laughs) You know, I will start here um, within the next couple weeks because and I don't have a whole lot of hair. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty much going bald. But all right. <laughs> they say that, you know, all the studies that I've seen over the years, it takes two to three weeks to get scent out of your hair. Okay. So these guys that are going in and just using scent shampoo for one day and say, yeah, I'm good, and they go out hunting. If they've been using some type of fragrance shampoo, it's still going to be in there.
2: Two to three weeks. Okay. Yep. Interesting. So I, I, always I have not heard start that yet. early. Okay.
0: Yep. Um, so I always start early, and I will start using that. And my wife hates deer season because she's a big hunter and loves to hunt with me. Um, but trying to find really good shampoos for women... Um, with conditioners and stuff is, is difficult right? Uh, for me because I don't have a lot of hair. I don't care. I'm like, whatever. I just put it on my head and away we go. But, you know, we start two to three weeks before season starts and it's a ritual. I mean, it's you shower with scent-free soaps, scent-free shampoos. Your clothes are washed and scent-free. Um, they're put in scent-free boxes. You know, so when I get done... You know, and it's time for season, I will shower, I will get in the truck with, you know, short something that does not stink. I don't wear I will actually I have other clothes, blue jeans and other clothes that are washed and sent free without regular detergents and soaps that are put in a whole nother box. That that's what I wear when I'm in a truck. And then once I get to where I'm going, Then I'll pretty much strip down my underwear, and I will spray myself down uh, with no scent sprays. Um, And then I will put on my clothes over the top of that that are scent-free, and I always carry in, you know, I'll put on scent-free deodorant. I'll carry in a bottle of spray, and then I'll spray myself again once I get up into that tree. And, uh, make sure my bow is sprayed, make sure my arrows are sprayed, make sure, you know, everything is sprayed because you've been touching that all summer, um, it's been laying next to the dog kennel. There's, you know, so I'm very scent cautious. I still play the wind, however, because I think you have to, but, um, have I had deer walk straight downwind to me? Yes. But that's because, you know, it's a, it's a ritual taking care of it. It's no different than my trail cameras. You know, trail cameras, I hear it all the time, and I do a lot of trail camera seminars. Is people are always saying, you know, I get one picture of a big deer, and then it's gone. I never see it again. Or, you know, they're seeing my flash. They're seeing the IR. They're seeing that every single time I hear something new, every new camera comes out, there's something new. Right. And I'm like, guys, no, If if the flash is scaring a deer, Then the next time there's a thunder and lightning storm and that lightning starts flashing, everybody take cover. Because deer are going to go crazy running through houses, front of cars, everything else. Okay, so, no, I don't truly believe that. That does not happen. I've run too many studies on them and watched too many of them to see what happens. I mean, I run 50, 60, 70-plus cameras a year on different leases all over the country. Mm -hmm. And then it was the IR. They're seeing the IR. They're seeing a, well, what... I've found in all the studies, different things I've done is I look at it and it's no different than you and me. If if you walked out and your wife came home and put something new on the kitchen table, you walked in there tonight and you saw that, you'd be like, huh, wonder what that, you know. Sure. Wonder what that is over there. That deer... Those deer trails, those woods, he knows that, like the back of his hand. Those does know it, those bucks know it, because that's where they live. That's their kitchen. That's their living room, okay, their bedroom, whatever you want to call it. And they're in there. So all of a sudden, you walk in on their trail, and you put a camera at eye level right in front of them. They're going to notice that.
2: Of course. Absolutely. They
0: well, do. as soon as they start looking at it, if that thing flashes in their face, or it clicks, or an IR, or they see anything... If it has any type of scent associated with it, that's a non-normal scent, they're going to freak out over it. So I truly believe that most of it is our scent that we need to get rid of. So when you first buy a trail camera, you take it out of the package, it stinks.
2: (laughs) Sure it does. It smells like factory.
0: They're horrible. So I will take that and I will take the straps and I put them outside in my yard and I will hose them down. And I will wash them with scent-free soap, and then I will let them sit out there for a week on and off through rain, through whatever, and just let them air dry, um, get wet. And then when that's done, I put them in a scent-free box again. I will take them out. When I put those up, I will wear my gloves, latex gloves or non-latex vinyl gloves, put that camera up, and then I will take field wipes, and I will wipe that camera down as soon as it's up, gotcha. get rid of all that scent. And then it's the same when I go check them. I always try to put those cameras in areas that I can easily access without putting a lot of my scent out there. I get to that camera, I always take two cards, then I'll write on there, you know, cam number one. And then that way when I get to that, you know, I have two cards for it, I'll put a card in it, wipe the camera down, shut it, and I'm gone. I don't want to mess around with that camera. The less scent, the less invasive, the less intrusive, the better, and I'm gone. And I go to the next camera and do the same thing. And, uh, you know, so the quicker you can check those and the quicker you can get out of there, especially try to do it in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. the better you are.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Very, very so, cool. And what other types of equipment are you using in in your stand If you or in the, you hangs out in your backpack, and uh, what weapons are you your weapons of choice
0: well um you know this year i'm uh shooting the carbon defiant white carbon defiant i like that i like a carbon bow and the reason i do is because i like to do a lot of cold weather hunting late season okay and carbon doesn't transfer that cold like an aluminum riser does and so that's why i like that is just because when it's super cold um that carbon feels better. It's not as, it's not as freezing cold in my hand. Also, you know, if I'm out, uh, last year we did a uh, high country mountain lion hunt uh, a couple of years ago, we did a high country mountain goat hunt. And, you know, so the carbons, they're like, yeah, but it's only a pound. Well, <laughs> you know what, when you're, you're 10,000 feet and you're pushing four five, six miles, you know, when I'm deer hunting though, it's still that pound makes a difference. And I like that you know, for those reasons, one weight, but also so it doesn't transfer that cold into my hand um new archery products I've been a Spitfire guy forever and ever, uh, as far as um a mechanical head, and uh the new Spitfire double Cross has just been um had great luck with that. Uh, I shoot the full metal jacket, I shoot the small diameters, okay um just because they're a little bit heavier. The thing is, and a lot of people, well, they bend. Well, yeah, they bend their full metal jacket. It's an aluminum, you know, it's a carbon arrow wrapped in aluminum. Why? Because they can make it straighter. It's straighter and it's a little stiffer. So it gives you a lot more penetrating power. And so when I'm hunting elk or if I'm hunting big game, I like that. You know, it's super small diameter. There's not a lot of drag on it, but yet it gives you that extra penetration, that drive that you need out of it. And that's why, you know, that arrow's been great. Does it bend? Yes. Can it, you know, not obviously every time, but can it? Sure it can. But you can also break a carbon arrow, and that's what I tell guys. That deer can fall over on a carbon. That deer can snap that off. Um, You can go through that deer and hit a tree and just right and snap it or crack that arrow too. So, you know, what do you want to give up here? And um, it's your choice and my choice because I like that penetration, is why I go with that full metal jacket. Um, so, you know, in cold weather gear, because I like to hunt a lot uh, in, in the cold, is Arctic Shield clothing. They uh, redesigned everything a couple of years ago, and, and that's been uh, my go-to. The problem is, is that you have to figure out what to wear because it can actually be too warm. <laughs>
1: okay, right.
0: I don't think you'd ever say, you know, I don't think I'd ever catch myself saying that, Right. but it can be too warm. Um, so you have to kind of look at everything. And when, when you look at it and it says, yeah, this is, you know, from 20 degrees to uh, 40 degrees, that's, they're talking 20 degrees. I mean, it's not, and last year when we were out, you know, it was super cold and everything else up there on the mountain. And that's what we're going to do some walking. So I'm just going to take my bibs. And I tell you what, I started walking and I'm like, ah, this just isn't going to (laughs) happen. These things are just way too (laughs) crazy warm, you know? So you kind of have to watch it but because i like to hunt late season like that and uh you know they're developing stuff that's lighter and lighter now for that early season 50 to 60 degree stuff which is super thin super comfortable but yet still pretty warm so uh that and um you know i've done my real tree clothing forever and ever since bill jordan came out with the original pattern and i've stuck with it i've just always liked that pattern and uh you know so you know, as they develop new ones, just seems to switch. Um, the thing is with patterns that a lot of people don't understand is the difference between, you know, they'll buy either green or they'll buy brown. Well, I like both because as a turkey hunter, I like to have that brown early in the year. Um, and as the turkey seasons progress, then I like to get more green involved. It's the same way in the fall. I like that green earlier in the year. And then switching over to brown as things all die off and turn more into fall. Okay. So, um, that's why I kind of go with, you know, a couple different patterns is just because of that. Gotcha. So, um, but yeah, other than that, um, you know, Summit ladder stands, my wife likes to be comfortable. So, you know, we go with the big, the biggest ladder stands, you know, that one person can fit in and then, you know, we hang, have the hang on stand for the cameraman and, um, so it's, uh, she like I said, I like those because they have, uh, you know, they've got a seat built right into them that's separate away from the tree. So you can, if the tree's a little crooked, you can still get that seat pretty much square and sit and be comfortable.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Very cool. So. Well, I think we've written like a blueprint on how to hunt deer. <laughs> based yeah. on all the yeah. stuff you just laid down. <laughs> that's crazy. I and mean, we
0: can, like I said, I, I love my deer hunting. We could sit here and talk for hours and hours and hours about right. this. So, right, gotcha. Yeah.
2: Let's uh, let's let's transition into an actual hunt now that you've established all the ways in which you do hunt them and how you prep for them. Let's think of a, a time in your life where you you went on a hunt and it still kind of sticks out in your head today. Is there a, a hunt in particular that
1: you
0: remember? There is. It's you know, I mean, there's there's a million of them out there, but this was kind of a two part which was kind of a depressing end of the first part, but got better. My my daughter and my wife and I used to hunt uh, North Dakota with a buddy of mine out there. And we were hunting velvet deer.
1: Nice. And
0: my wife and my buddy were down at one end, and um, I really wanted my daughter. She had, she had not shot a deer yet, and uh, we had everything set up out there, you know, we're right along the edge of the river and, um, a great early season funnel, bunch of apple trees in this area. So we got set up and, uh, we had a few deer coming through and as the night progressed, I tapped my daughter on the shoulder and I said, there's a really, really big velvet deer coming down the pipe. I said, so you might want to get things ready. And she goes, okay. And at the time she was, I believe only 13 years old and, uh, she had, only shot a couple of does and uh, hadn't shot a buck with her bow. And as this deer keeps getting closer and I'm filming this deer and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, wow, this is this is a really, really big velvet deer. I'm like, this deer is, you know, a mid-150s, 160 buck. And she's going to get a crack at this thing if things keep, you know, happening. And uh, so this deer comes in and keeps you know, making his way slowly but surely, and finally gets there. And and I'm filming, and I'm watching her. And and she knew what to do, even at 13 years old. You know, or 14. She she'd been around the woods enough with me over the years, and she started hunting with me. You know, where she couldn't hunt, but she started going with me, and she was like five, six years old, and just sitting in a tree. So she she knew what to do, and I was pretty confident in her. And so I'm kind of watching through the eyepiece and watching her at the same time and the deer stops and it stops like 18 yards puts his foot or its leg forward and i watch her go to full draw and i'm thinking okay this is gonna happen the deer kind of stops looks around she squeezes the trigger and i watch it arrow go mm. and it goes right i mean looks like money yep. and this deer spins around takes off and I am as excited as any dad in the world has ever been, because I'm thinking my <laughs> daughter just killed 155 or inch or better full velvet deer Right. and just absolutely gorgeous. She's excited. I'm excited. So I kind of replay the video and I'm like, you know, you didn't get a lot of penetration, but it's right behind that shoulder, just as perfect as I think I, it can be. So I'm going to get your mom out of the tree stand. She's like, you're doing what? I'm like, I'm going to get mom and and my buddy Eldon out of the tree stand. So I go over there, and I'm like, guys, Elena just shot a giant velvet deer. You guys need to get out. They're like, okay. And so we go out, and we find some blood, and we start looking, and nothing. We can't find this deer. So we go back and watch footage, and we're like, I just don't know if she's got enough penetration. So the next morning, we go out, and we look.
1: We look for hours,
0: and blood dries up, find part of, part of her arrow, and gone. Never see this deer again. Yep. So we're pretty depressed. Um, my wife ends up shooting a pretty nice velvet deer, and, and we leave and come back to Wisconsin. and I never make it back to North Dakota that year. And So the following year, I'm talking to my buddy again, and I'm like, you know, this year I think Dad and I are going to come out, but I can't make it out until the end of November. And uh, he's, dude, you know what the weather's like out here along the river? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I said, we'll be good. And uh, so I sent out some trail cameras, and he's like, you know, I got this really good buck. He's about a oh, mile and a half, two miles down the river on some public land, um, you know, off of the land that we usually hunt. And I said, well, I said, if we can get in there, let's go. So that's where he's hanging. So we go out and we hang some stands and get everything set. And mind you, this is an entire year, and while well, she shot hers, it would have been the first part of September. And so now this is an entire year, end of November, first part of December, we're out there. Gotcha. And so we see a couple bucks first night. The second night, I'm in this tree, and Eldon's with me. He's filming, and all of a sudden, we're, we're watching down along the creek bed and it is so cold that we are literally watching the ice on the river that's off the creek bed freeze. And yep. he's like, I don't know how much longer I can take this. And I said, does the camera even work? You wouldn't turn on, the camera will not even turn on. Of course,
2: right. That frozen. makes sense. And
0: I'm like, okay, we're done. I said, we might as well just call it because this is ridiculous. He said, you know, I mean, we're bundled as bundled can be. And all of a sudden, we're kind of sitting there and, I look over and I said, just wait. I said, there's a deer coming down through here. And it snowed all morning and stuff. And I pretty soon we see a few deer filtering through. And here's this buck we had on camera. And I'm like, here he comes. And uh, he's like, all right. And he comes in and I said, camera? He goes, it's not going to go. And I said, well, I'm going to shoot the deer anyway because this is a big deer. And uh, I turn my head, honestly turn my head and look to the back as I draw my bow because I'm afraid that it's going to snap. It's that cold. And I draw this thing back and I'm like, Wow, it didn't blow up. I'm good. (laughs) Deer steps out. He's like 22 yards. I shoot this deer, and literally as this deer is running, you can watch the blood freezing. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's like freezing as it hits the snow. I mean, it's that cold. And this deer runs probably 35, 40 yards, stops, falls over dead. Wow. We look at each other, and we're like, let's get out of here. (laughs) So we back up, we bail the bottom of the tree. We get down there, and it is so cold trying to take our gloves and stuff off that basically I gut this deer, we tag this deer, we wrap what we can on this deer because we're so cold by that time that we can't drag it out. I'm like, I'm not dragging it, I'm not going anywhere because it is so cold. And we're like celebrating, it's great. We take off for a walk, and by the time we get to the truck, I mean, we're just freezing. My dad's sitting in the truck, I'm like, how long have you been here? He goes, two and a half hours. He says, I was in the tree for 45 minutes and, and done. He says, I couldn't do it. He says, I don't know how you guys did it. I said, well, we were leaving, and this deer came in, and I shot it, and blah, blah, blah. And Turned on the car, and it was 22 below zero without a windchill.
2: Without the
0: windchill? Without the windchill. Holy shit. And smokes. so he looked on his weather app, and it was like 37 below windchill. And I'm like, yeah, no wonder we're cold. This is stupid stupid. I'll never do this again in my life. I'm like, we're idiots, you know, this and that, but we're all still pretty excited about this deer. So the next morning we go back out and grab this deer, um, do what we have to do for pictures, things like that, take it back to the shop. And my buddy's a taxidermist. So we're stripping, you know, we're taking the cape off. Cause I'm like, I'm going to do probably a half body on this deer. It's probably the biggest eight pointer I've ever killed, you know, and like, it's gotta be a 160 inch eight pointer. And uh he's like, Yeah, it's gonna be close, you know, if not just a little above and mm. so we're pretty excited about that and we're skinning this thing and all of a sudden he goes, Well what is that? I said, What do you mean? He goes, Feel this and so I put my hand up inside the cavity of that deer again behind the shoulder and there's this huge mass in there. Just I mean, just like a big tumor almost. Really? He's like, well, we got to find out what this is. And I said, yeah. So we cut this thing open, and after we get the cape off stuff, so we're hacking away, and we cut this big mass out of there, cut it open, and here's my daughter's broadhead with two and a half inches of her arrow inside this deer. <laughs> and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, huh? He goes, no, not, that deer got killed last year during rifle season. I said, but I said, I put their initials on the ferals of all these broadheads. I said, we're going to find out real shortly. And, um, once we started to unscrew it, sure enough, her initials were on that feral. Wow. And he's like, okay, that's probably the craziest thing I've ever seen. Well, as we started looking at this deer, it went in right behind the shoulder, but instead of dropping straight down when it string jumped her, it went to run forward. And that leg, she was so tight behind that shoulder that it actually pushed that arrow and it looked like it was right. And as it went in, because it was slow enough, it snapped the arrow off and flipped that two and a half inches of arrow around and laid on the inside of its body cavity instead of getting to the lungs or the heart. Huh. And flipped it up tight right against the inside of its rib cage and grew this huge mass all the way around that.
2: That's crazy wow
0: it was it was I, i'd never seen anything and if i went to seen it and i went to had eldon and a couple other guys in the shop when that happened we probably all would have gone yeah, yeah right. you're full of it man and um
1: yeah, they i still
0: have that broadhead so when i mounted that deer i actually took that broadhead and incorporated it into that mount that's insane and, uh, there's no yeah, question
2: there's no question that had you told that story independent without a witness, it, you would have been accused of embellishing. There's no
0: question oh, yeah. about
2: that. That's crazy.
0: It, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was the craziest thing because, like I said, it was literally a mile or farther from where she had shot that a year and two months or a year and three months prior to me even going back right, and shooting that deer. And then to shoot the exact same deer and still have that much of the broadhead in it and an arrow it was it was crazy and uh yeah so that was pretty neat so that was that hunt just because there were so many downs right away and then to actually end up with that same deer and bring it home you know in the family and so it's kind of funny because she you know and so when we got the mount back she comes back and she says so my deer looks pretty good, doesn't it, dad? (laughs) I said, "Yeah." yeah, I said, it's, uh, this is kind of a two for deer here, honey. So, um, it was just kind of neat. And, um, again, that's why that hunt sticks out. You know, I've got a million of them, but that one really, uh, kind of sticks out that, uh, how you can shoot a mature deer like that. And then a year later go back and it's still alive and and have the circumstances that were there happen. So that was kind
2: of neat. That is fantastic. What a great story, man. That is a memorable deer story. Holy yeah. smokes. That's awesome. So, man. Very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into the 10 rapid fire questions here. All right. I didn't prep you for these, so don't, don't be nervous. No problem. They're, they're just off the cuff. All right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time?
0: Ooh, make sure you're broad. As far as archery hunting, um, Make sure your broadheads are sharp. You know, working with a broadhead company for years, uh, if they are not super sharp, we used to do what's called a rubber band test. Okay. If they wouldn't cut a rubber band, when you run that over, you'll see them roll. That rubber band is like arteries. Yep. The sharper that broadhead, the better the blood trail the better that that will, you know, it'll cut, it'll make more damage. Um, So it's not necessarily how big it is. Obviously, the bigger the broadhead and the sharper, the more damage it will do. But a dull broadhead will not create the same blood trails and the same hemorrhage that a sharp one will. So always make sure your broadheads are very sharp.
2: Gotcha. Very good. Excellent. All right. Number two, we all have these items that we feel like we need to hunt with. Maybe they're good luck charms. Maybe they're an actual item that you feel like you need to have with you at all times to be successful. And it drives us crazy if we leave it at home or in the truck. What's that one thing for you?
0: <laughs> well, years ago, I really didn't have that one thing. However, now, um, my wife and I do a lot of work with special needs hunters and handicapped hunters. Mm-hmm. And years ago, we met a little gentleman by the name of Drake Taylor. Okay. And. Drake Taylor, um, we hunted for a couple years with Drake, and he passed away. And when he passed away, he used to make jewelry. And I have the one of the last necklaces that he ever made himself Okay, that he made for me. And now I do not go hunting in a blind or anywhere else without that part of his necklace.
2: Gotcha. I can see why you'd want to have that with you.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, there's a lot of things, but there's just something about that one that now, now I've got to have that with me.
2: Right, gotcha. Alright, what's your biggest pet peeve in life?
0: <laughs> My biggest pet peeve? <sighs> well, <laughs> there's a lot of them. <laughs> 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 Poachers drive me crazy, uh, liars drive me crazy, um, they're just, it's, uh, I guess, um, Boy, that one, that's probably one of the toughest questions ever. It's my biggest pet peeve.
2: It's, there's, there can be a lot to that. Some people don't have is. any. Some people have a lot of them. Um, I have a lot of them.
0: I guess, truthfully, would be uh, trespassers. Uh, and the reason why is, you know, until I owned my own property, I didn't really realize why people got so upset about it. And now I look at it and say, wait a minute here, you know, there's all kinds of public land, there's state lands, there's all these lands. Why are you trespassing on my property? You know, call and ask permission. More than likely, I'm going to say no. But, you know, even to come get a deer, I'm going to say yes, if you shot a deer and it's gone on my property. I'm not going to deny you of that. Right. But we pay, you know... So, granted, they may not be able to afford land, but that's what they have public lands for, and that's why you ask other people for permission. You know, they look at when you do certain things and grow deer or try to grow big deer, people trespass to get in there to shoot them and do things. And it's like, wait a minute, you don't understand how much money that land costs, the taxes, the hours TSI work, the money into chainsaws, the money into food plots, the money into so you're spending all this. So I guess people that are trespassing, um to do that, that that really burns me because right. the landowner has put so much time and dedication and devoted so much into that. That stay off. You know, either ask or stay off. Right. And a lot of them are afraid that you're going to say no, so they just go in there anyway. Gotcha. Well, then they get mad when they get a ticket for trespassing. <laughs>
2: That makes sense there's a lot of, there's a lot of energy and money and time and effort spent into all this development. Right. And if they want to do that, they need to go find a place to do that too.
0: Right. And, and there's a lot of places to do it. There's a lot of public, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of places to hunt and there's a lot of people that will let you still hunt. It's just a matter of asking. Right.
2: Exactly. All right. Yep. Very good. All right. Number four, what, what, how old are you today?
0: 47
2: forty seven years old what would you tell the twenty seven year old art Helen knowing what you know today
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess at twenty seven i would have uh I would have been a little more focused on family and what to do you know with family at that point in time of my life, you know we were working with Ralph and Vicky with the TV show, doing seminars, doing a lot of things. And I remember there was times when I wouldn't even see the inside of my house for, you know, a month. Right. And, you know, so today looking at it, some advice that I, I try to give not only myself, but other people that are younger is guys and girls, you know, number one family, your kids grow up very fast. You have time, make time for your career. But, make more time for your family because you only have one of them, right, and I guess that's what I would have told myself is you can continue to grow your career, but you can't get those times back that I missed with my kids, the birthdays, the anniversaries the the soccer games, the different things. It's fine time to do that because careers come and go, your family is all you all you really have right and at, at the end, right. so you know, focus more on that and, um, you know, make you living and do your thing, but try to be the best parent and the best adult that you can be um, as you move forward through that age. That's, that's probably what I tell myself.
2: Yep. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> I so agree with that. Art. Right, that is one thing that kind of came through to me about 10 years ago. And it's, uh, it's been the most rewarding development and, and viewpoint in my life that I think I've ever had. Yeah. All right, let's see. Number five, uh, you're at a, a hunting convention somewhere in the world and a stranger comes up to you and they ask you what you do for a living. What would you tell them?
0: Ooh, um, I would say I work in the outdoor industry, outdoor okay. hunting industry. Um, one of the biggest mistakes, and, and I don't really want to say mistakes, but um, I'm trying to think of a word here,
4: uh, misunderstandings
0: is people think that you know, they see someone on TV or they see me traveling around doing seminars all the time, talking about hunting or on podcasts or doing things that all we do is hunt for a living. You know, I still, like I said, help my dad in the appraisal industry when I have to. Mm-hmm. I have a land management business. I have a photography business. I have, you know, I, I diversify. I have a seminar business. Um, Hunting, even for the TV show hosts and guys that do that all the time, hunting does not pay your bills. What pays your bills is the seminars, the land management, the spe- you know the speaking engagements, the different things like that, and that's why I say I work in the outdoor industry. Yes, do I get to hunt every single day of the year? Yeah, I'm fortunate that I do. The reason that that is is because I have to become knowledgeable. So that I can bring that information back to seminars and new seminars and new educational things to get paid for those to be able to go out and hunt, so in a roundabout way, are you getting paid to hunt? Eh, I guess you could say yes, but in reality, not really. You're getting paid for you know the land management for the seminars for the t v appearances for all that stuff, but that you know is what comes from hunting. You have to hunt in order to get that paycheck. Understand what I'm trying to say?
2: Absolutely. Yep. You can have, you can't have you can't be the expert without the knowledge and without, right. without so you that.
0: Can't, you, right. Yeah, so you can't say that I hunt for a living because you don't. Nobody hunts for it. They don't pay anybody to sit in a tree stand. Right. They pay you for your knowledge to educate people or to entertain people. That's the difference. Right. Right. Uh, and I think people have a big misunderstanding about that is that they're getting paid to sit in a tree. No, they're getting paid to be promotional people. You know, we're promoting, you know, the outdoor industry, we're promoting a product, we're promoting different things. That's what pro staff is, is we're promotional. There is, you know, as far as professional hunters, as far as if they want to call us that, that's fine. However, we're truly promotional hunters is what we are. We promote the entire outdoor industry, and that's what we're getting paid to do is to promote.
2: Right, gotcha. Very good. All right, this one's easy. What did you have for breakfast this morning?
0: I had a wilderness athlete um, replacement shake. I'm trying to get ready for the mountains in (laughs) another week, and so I've been running a wilderness athlete 28 day challenge. And, uh, so in the mornings I get up and either I have, um, a lot of protein and eggs, um, or I will take a replacement shake. And this morning was a replacement shake. So that was pretty simple.
2: (laughs) All right. Very good. (laughs) Sounds sounds very healthy. (laughs) All right. Number eight, if I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why?
0: that one's tough because I know a lot of, you know, successful individuals. There's actually quite a few people. You know, my dad, I look at as successful, but in many different ways, you know, because he was always a good dad. He was a good father. He was, you know, successful in his business. You know, so you look at that as self-employed is is very tough business today. and, And He was successful in it. Again, he was successful as uh, being a role model as a father to not only me, but to my sisters, to my nephews, to my nieces as a grandfather. And so, you know, there's different ways of being successful, and I think he's very successful, you know, that way. You know, my my wife is very successful in in her business and her job, and to be able to do the things she does with me, and help me become successful one of the most recent that i think is you know very humbling to me and very uh proud dad moment is my oldest daughter she uh, recently has moved to india under an internship she is a environmental engineer getting her masters in civil engineering but working with water treatment facilities and drawing up new plans for the entire country and large cities in India. To me, that's pretty successful when you're, you know, twenty, three, twenty four 24 years old and, and you're in different countries helping develop new things for countries and for our future for everybody. That's pretty cool. It, there's a lot of different levels in that, I guess, um, as far as success. You I know, agree. I have I many mentors, you know, in the outdoor industry that I think are very successful. Uh, but, you know, again, go back to my dad and and look at, because I think without him guiding me and doing the certain things he did to help me succeed in life, I wouldn't be able to um, have been the father I am today to both my daughters, for one who's in UW-Madison trying to become a doctor and another one who's, you know, getting her master's in engineering. So, um, thankfully they got their mother's brains, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, um, to, to help do that, you know, so I guess that's what I would look at as, as dads, you know?
2: Sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. And I have a lot of respect for my father too. Absolutely. All right. Number nine, what's a typical day in your life look like?
0: <laughs> chaos. <laughs> chaos. <laughs> chaos. Chaos. It all depends on the time of year. You know, at this time of year, as things are, you know, slow in the seminar series and the land management series, I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get up in the morning and I will do some work on my computer as far as getting stuff to outdoor writers that need to be done, uh, editing photos that needs to be done, getting photos to different Uh, magazines and different outlets. Uh, then I'll go to my other office downtown and work with my dad as far as, you know, appraisals, if there needs to be any, then I will come back home and get right back to work on the computer or I'll go out to the farm and make sure that, um, you know, food plots are done, make sure that, you know, all my fall work is done, trails are mowed, trees are cut, uh, Different things are done out there, hanging tree stands. And then, you know, usually in the evening I'll come home and, you know, have my supper and then I'll go for a uh, walk somewhere with my wife and we'll talk about different things of the day. I'll come back home and usually I'll either go back to work on the computer or do some things or, you know, sometimes I'll go down and we'll just have some downtime and watch, uh, you know, CSI or criminal minds or something on TV and that's, and kind of veg for a little while. And gotcha. uh, that's usually what the day is. Okay. All right. Very good.
2: alright I'll I'll swing right in to number 10. What's a typical deer hunting day
0: in your life look like? A typical deer hunting day? Ooh. Um, again, it depends on what time of year. It's, uh, you know, early season that'll be coming up. I'm not one uh, to push early morning hunts right away in the beginning of the year, especially when I'm trying to hunt you know, five and six year old deer, because I don't like to, you know, if something goes wrong on those first couple of days in the mornings, um, and I blow them out of those areas, that's not a good deal. Right. Not that early in the year. So
1: right.
0: my typical is I'll scout from a distance in the mornings on early season, uh, get in there, hunt the afternoons and start doing that every day and, and changing things up. And as the season progresses, you know my um depends on if i have my handicapped hunters in or my special needs hunters in because if they're in um my day starts an hour to an hour and a half earlier than normal uh just trying to get you know them ready and them into tree stands once i get them situated then i have to go back and reorganize myself and then get to my own stands and hunt and when those types of, when that time of year comes, that's my typical day is, is I'll get up, you know, sometimes at 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning so I can have them out and then I can get in my stand and we will usually sit all morning uh, until late morning on the earlier seasons and then I will get them and then we'll get back and, you know, take a little break and get back in in the afternoon. Once I get to that mid-October, typical day is sun up, sundown. Um, whether I'm moving to a funnel in the middle of the day or not, but it's a sun up to sundown hunt and, uh, right back at it the next day. Gotcha. uh, It's, uh, they can be long, grueling days, but that's, you know, if I want to learn things and and educate people, that's what you got to do. And some people say, man, that's just, I'd love to be able to do that. And then they go and they do it for three, four days straight and they go, I don't know how you do this every year.
1: Right, right.
0: <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Let me tell you, I got my days. So, and uh, but no, it's that's a typical day as far as deer hunting goes. You know, just getting all the equipment ready, and you know the other thing right now is trying to get at least an hour worth of shooting in a day. Gotcha. So
2: very cool, well, Art. I got to tell you, this has been awesome. It's we've uh, we've been talking about a lot of different aspects, and I, I literally, <laughs> as I said earlier, I think this is a blueprint for a lot of people on how to do things. Um Thank you. where can we find more information let's let's pretend like we didn't cover enough material here today and <laughs> if if people still had questions where would they go to find more information out
0: about you well hopefully back on your show again someday but right. um <laughs> no the uh it's um my website would be www.arthelenoutdoors it's h e l i n outdoors.com um if they're into photography work because I have to separate those because some people aren't into hunting that are into photography. I do have a photography page which is an s photo.com and then I have uh, my Facebook pages which is art helen outdoors and wild reflections photography. Uh, the main one, as far as hunting and to get a hold of me is obviously the art dot com or just the art Helen outdoors Facebook page.
2: Gotcha. all right, very cool art right. this has been an Absolute honor and a pleasure to have you on the show i've learned a lot, and it was nice to just kind of lay it out as to how somebody might want to go about working on their own piece of property and and then how to hunt them and to find out how you went about it through experience which is which is cool that you constantly hone your craft through actual application, not just um theory so this is uh 's been very eye opening
0: thank you yeah it's been uh, it's been a pleasure sir I appreciate it and um it's been good, and like I said, I think we could sit here and talk for hours about it, and you know, because it's an ever-evolving industry, and that's why you have to do what we have to do and spend as much time as we can because we have to evolve right with it um, in order to get better at it. So, like I said, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun, and I really appreciate uh, you having me on the show.
2: Well, thanks to Art Helen for joining us on the Big Buck Red Street Deer Hunting Podcast. I most enjoyed that conversation. I like hunters that share their knowledge and go deep with both their successes and failures and think deeply about what's going on around them, whether it's habitat, whether it's timberland management. As you heard, Art really enjoys speaking to a good forester, and foresters are stewards. They're stewards of the land, and that's where the deer are, so... Get to know your local forester. I think it'll go a long ways. Art certainly found lots of value there, and uh, we really appreciate Art spending as much time as he did with us. To share all the things that he's learned, we certainly wish him success with Art Helen Outdoors, and good luck in the deer woods this fall. Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week this week? Yeah, we do, Jade. The Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, sporting Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax.
3: Morses Sporting Goods. Safety harness time. Get your stuff out, go through it. Tree stand, climbers, hang on. If you've got a safety harness that has a fray or a little bit of a cut or Maybe you hooked it on a fence or maybe you hooked it on a part of your tailgate or something or a bolt sticking out in the barn where you had it and it's got a fray or a rip in it. You know, guys, gals, friends of ours, you've got to stop and think, is a $100 safety harness worth your life? Absolutely not. Is a broken frayed cable on your hang-on tree stand or your climber worth your life? Absolutely not. Take that 100 bucks and get it fixed. Buy you a new harness, or it, it may be more than 100 bucks. Spend the money. Be safe. If you come back with an injury or a wound, you, you're no longer enjoying your hunt. So just get it fixed, get it right, and, and be safe out there. You know, there's so much new safety gear out there as far as the lifeline from the top, from the ground, clear to the seat. Right. Uh, everybody's like, oh, that's that's expensive. Well, it's, it's not really expensive when it comes to your life. I, I would pay quite a bit to keep my life. From having a hunting accident right so just you know use your head and and, and maybe uh, overlook a couple bags of corn to, to fix your safety equipment yeah i
2: think more hunters get hurt every year falling out of a tree stand because they didn't have the proper safety equipment than they do in any other facet
3: of hunting you know, right th- just you know it's just a just a simple visual hands-on look at everything put your harness on look it over lay it out in the garage floor or out in the grass or in your living room wherever or your basement and look it over, you know. You don't pull a bow back with a half frayed cable in your face. Why would you hang yourself up in a tree with a frayed safety harness? Exactly. You just don't do it. You get it fixed or get a new one and and make it right. And I'm telling you, there's there's all kinds of Facebook groups out there. I'm, I'm gonna say something here. Get on Facebook, find a hunting group, and post on there. If you're low on funds, post on there that you need a safety harness. Other hunters will will postage u.s safety harness that they got laying around a good one right they're, you know hunters take care of hunters there's people out there that'll help you get on these groups on facebook you know and find somebody that's got an extra safety harness that may been sitting on the shelf for two years that they've never worn or opened a package of and they'll ship it to you no problem at all you know that they're everybody's happy to help out when it comes to safety so just you know use your head and, and don't get all excited about going hunting the next morning and you got a bad safety harness it's not worth it that deer will be there the next day Take time and get your safety equipment right. Or man, it's not worth going to the woods. That's that you know. That's something that I, me and Jay or Jay and myself cannot stress enough about being safe in the woods. Right. We want to hear your story, not not a horror story that you fell and broke your neck or your back or your legs or your arms or you know. We see it every year. Why? Why should this be happening? You you gotta wear some kind of safety gear. Exactly. Yeah. We spent You know, that
2: was one of the efforts that we uh, focused on when I hunted in Ohio with you. Is we made sure we had our safety harness. You know, it's a little awkward, and it certainly bulks up your gear. But
3: it was you absolutely essential. Yeah, you gotta have it. You know, and a lot of guys go on these hang ons, and and they're leaving the hang on out in the woods for all summer, and the weather just eats the cables out of them. Well, what what was really good last year could be really weak this year. So take that in consideration. You know, you gotta check your gear. Yeah. Just just because it you know you think it's good doesn't always mean that it is safe. Exactly. And I would guess that
2: if you needed some stuff, Morse's Sporting Goods would be carrying that over at their place. I, when, last time I was there, they had a whole bunch of it. So if you want to like save some money on sales tax, you can buy it in New Hampshire right from Morse's. I'll listen to the ad, and you'll get all the contact information for that. Oh, that's, that's that's an absolutely great tip, Dusty. It's that time of year. We will all be in tree stands before you know it and uh, check your equipment before you go out there make sure you're safe. Well, that's great, man. Thanks for that tip of the week. That was fantastic. Thank you to Morse's Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines tip of the week. I'd also like to say thank you to all of our sponsors. Without them, this show is not possible. And specifically, I'd like to say thank you to Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, Covert Scouting Cameras, the Horny Buck Seed Company, And once again, Morse's Sporting Goods. I truly believe in each and every product that we're advertising on this show. We've tried them all. We've been to the stores. Each and every one are absolutely high-quality, high-grade products. And if you're shopping for any one of these types of items, please give our sponsors a shot first. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me?
3: Uh, shoot me an email, dusty at com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you or you're not on the mic?
2: Likewise, you can shoot me an email, j at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We are also on Instagram, Instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is YouTube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice. Let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Blueberry. And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash my buck, and all of the instructions will be right there. I think that's pretty much everywhere we're at. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry's deer hunting podcast. We'll see you next week.
3: Can't Can't wait. (laughs)